For those of you who are not aware, my Phillies are in the World Series. Thank you. All right, because Mary grew up not too far from Philadelphia. So I want you to know that I am so excited that my Phillies, who were seated sixth, okay, so probably like 10 to 12th overall, and they're in the World Series, they played their first game last night. Can I hang on a second? I want to tell you in my confession that after the third inning, the Phillies were down five to nothing. Two home runs were given up by the same person one after the other and one inning after the other, it seemed. I was just amazed that these Astros were killing my Phillies. Can I confess something to you? I did not want to look at the score anymore. I had given up on my Phillies. The Astros are such an amazing... Yes, I am so sorry to, to even confess that. I'd given up on my Phillies. Top of the fourth, I just... Bottom of the, the third, I just... You know, I said, I'm not checking the, the... I'm not checking it anymore. So, I did get curious. That was the only reason why I went back and even checked the score. It took me like two seconds. I was at somebody's party last night. So I didn't want to take up too much time. And I wanted to check the score. It's like, you know, the bottom or the top of, yeah, bottom of the fifth inning. And it was a tie score. And I just thought, what on earth happened? Here I was just two innings earlier wanting to give up on my Phillies. And they were back in the game. And they, they kept the Astros scoreless. It came down to an amazing catch at the bottom of the ninth to keep it 5-5 and then went into extra innings and our leadoff batter, Real Muto, put the ball out of the park for a game-winning home run. We kept the Astros to zero points in the, in the next, uh, at the bottom of the 10th, and my Phillies won. And I'm telling you this, I'm telling you this because I had given up. I was a fan. I grew up. I've been a fan for over 60 years of my Philadelphia Phillies, and I gave up on them after three innings. I was ashamed. I just thought, you know what? It serves me right. The Phillies are going to do well this year. By the way, thank you for those of you who haven't noticed. This is not a Philadelphia Phillies cap. It's a Philadelphia Eagles cap, but it will do. You know, the bottom line, maybe I'll keep these glasses on for the sermon. The bottom line is that Paul is coming to the close of his life and it's it's not like the it's like the ninth inning for him for some of us we're still my 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 son-in-law loves to call me a, a whippersnapper I'm a whippersnapper some of you are young whippersnappers and it's just the top of the fourth and you're wanting to give up Paul is in the ninth inning bottom of the ninth he's not ready to give up but he confesses, I have run the race. I have fought the fight. In essence, I've played the game, even into extra innings, and I'm ready to win this game. Now, Paul doesn't use the term game only because Christian, the Christian walk is not really a game. It is a competition, though. We are the, in the kingdom of light, fighting in the king, against the kingdom of darkness, seizing to rescue those still in that kingdom and bring them, by God's grace, into the kingdom of light. But some of us, 
are facing struggles and it's hard, maybe it's financial, maybe it's relational. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with a a child, a parent. You just want to give up. You're done. You're so wearied by it all. You're wearied by life. And there is this tendency for us to want to give up. And Paul says, no, no, I have fought the good fight. We're going, to t- we're going to talk a little bit about enduring hardships. James chapter 1, we've been going through the book of James. That is what that chapter is so much about. And James sets the stage as he begins to instruct so many different biblical truths rooted in this idea of enduring hardships, counting all of them joy. And so Paul needs to challenge Timothy. Paul needs to extend this challenge to Timothy, who is still young, and he says to him, basically, you have a job to do. Don't give up. Christian, you have a job to do. God has given to you an inheritance in everything that you need to accomplish the ministry that he's given you. And don't think that, hey, you know, because I'm not an apostle like Paul or Timothy, hey, this this isn't for me. Oh, absolutely it is. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the age, we will all stand before him. And may it beat in your heart now that you hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. But you know what? I don't want to just, like, endure. I don't want to just make it by the skin of my teeth, so to speak. I don't want to just kind of slide in barely. I want to cross that finish line strong. And And Paul is encouraging Timothy to do the very same thing. Finish strong. Don't get wearied, Timothy. Be strong. Run the race. Because there's an award, a reward awaiting you. So last week, I talked about just our motivation. And we looked at three things in the very beginning of chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you're not there, by the way, turn to it. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he gives three motivations here. He says, number one, that Jesus is your judge and the implications of that we learned about. And he also said that, in, that he's giving him this charge that I'm going to read to you in just a moment. And he says, follow this charge in view of what? His, Jesus is appearing and his kingdom. Jesus is going to come back. And guys, that's it. That's it. All cards are put on the table, pencils down. It's done. We've crossed the finish line. Now let's see who's won. Let's see who has finished. And the challenge is, of course, in view of these things, Timothy, fight this good fight. So what does that look like? I want to talk about that this evening. I want to talk about what does this fight look like? I want to talk about the ministry. I want to talk about what we are to give ourselves to in view of these motivations that we learned about last week. So Father, I just pray, give us insight by your Spirit that we would be able to not just learn, but the Father, that we would show us how to apply and walk in these truths. So challenge us tonight, God, by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. I want you to just underline or highlight that. Preach the word. And that's that's going to come to you and it's going to feel, wait a second, 
preaching the word. That's for preachers. But we're going to have to come back to that then. But Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there, are, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. God bless the reading of his word. You know, when we come to this very beginning, the, the very beginning of this charge, he starts it off by saying to Timothy, preach the word. Now that might feel a little bit intimidating, okay? It, it doesn't feel that way to me, only because I've, I, if I could add it up, I have probably preached and, and led Bible studies in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, okay? I mean, I, I think they counted up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to box this figure, I think they counted up um, like, who, who was it? Um, well, Charles, uh, Charles Spurgeon, and they, it was like over 20,000, if I'm not mistaken, sermons that he's preached in, in his lifetime. And, and he, his, he was in ministry for about the same time or less than me, because he died at his, he, he, didn't, he wasn't very old when he died, unfortunately. And so it, it's not so much intimidating for me, but, you know, when I was young, absolutely. Can I just tell you something? The word that's used here is the word kebrusa. And that means to proclaim publicly. To say something that's private and to declare it publicly. Now publicly, I don't mean that you have to come up here on a stage and have to preach in front of hundreds or thousands to be able to kebrusa or proclaim or preach the word. I think too often we hear this word, this phrase, preach the word, and we think, well, that's for preachers. Can I just tell you that that's not necessarily the case? If you were to look how this word is used in preaching or proclaiming, it was not just done by Jesus and the apostles. Jesus does say in Mark 16, 15, going, preach the gospel to all the world, to all creation, to all creatures. Okay, but look at Mount, earlier in that book, Mark 5.20, the gathering demoniac has demons cast out of him, perhaps upwards of 2,000 or more, because that's how many pigs there were that ran into, the, ran into the sea. And here he is, he's sitting in his right mind, clothed now, because he had ripped his clothes, broken chains on him by the power of the demons that were in him, and now he's in his right mind. Can you imagine what this guy looked like? Hair disheveled. Probably had not taken a bath in goodness who knows how long. And he wanted so much to follow Jesus. 
Jesus was getting ready to go and he begged Jesus, can I come with you? And Jesus realized that that would not be the timing or the place for his new friend. This ex-demoniac set free, praise God. Instead, he told him to stay and go home and tell his family. And he just, he began to blab it everywhere he went. He caruso. He didn't start an evangelistic campaign, if you were wondering. He just went to his friends, he went to his family, and word spread. Do you remember that guy that was in the tombs? He looked like a, man, he looked like a wild man. We tried to, we tried to hold him down one time and, and put him in prison for all the things he had done, and he beat us all up. This guy was strong, this guy, he, he was demonized. You got to listen to his message. This guy, Jesus, cast all those demons out, and this guy's a totally different person, and he wants to tell you about Jesus. Personal testimony. That is what it means to caruso. That's what it means to preach. All of us, I'm going to challenge you, all of us can know the word. Back in Jesus' day, that was such a privilege to have a Bible. Bibles are now available in America to just about every single person. And if you don't have a Bible, you can go to a nearby church and they'll give you a Bible. So there's no reason why we should, we would think, oh my goodness, you know, the word, I can't do that. Sure you can. Can you teach a child from the Bible? How many of you have ever told a child a Bible story or ever told a child a truth from the Bible? I'm going to raise your hand. Okay, that's like everybody in the room. You know what? Adults are just grown-up children. At least most of them are grown-up. Some of them get stuck there, I think. But if you can teach a child, you can teach an adult. You can tell your friends. You can tell your neighbor. You can tell your co-workers. But you know what? Caruso is not something that we need to be afraid of. Preach the word? Isn't that for preachers? Guess what, then? You're a preacher. You're the one who takes something that's private and has happened with you, the word of God changing your life, and you can make it public. Being made public simply means to tell somebody, not to just keep it to yourself. Tell somebody. When the woman, the 12-year-old girl was raised from the dead, word just spread. Jesus charged them, don't tell anybody. I don't know if they told people about it, but my goodness, how do you answer the question when she walks out of her bedroom and she's alive? Oh my goodness, what happened to her? How, what did Jesus do? And they had, I mean, what, what, sorry, we can't say anything. I'm sure they told somebody. And if they didn't, the girl said, wow, you know what? Jesus raised me from that. I mean, the word got out and the word began to spread. Somebody had to proclaim publicly to people what happened privately in a bedroom. And you and I can both do that. So please, as we're talking about preaching the word, look at it this way. You are telling the word or sharing the word. Actually, the NIV translates that with regard to the, the gathering demoniac. It says, he went and he told, not preached, but told what had happened to him. 
Okay? So this is something we can do. Please don't be intimidated by it. And it says here that we are to do this in season as well as out of season. That is, that there are going to be times in which it just comes natural. Maybe in a Bible study or at a service or after a service when somebody gives their heart to Christ and now you're ministering to them, you're praying for them, you're sharing the word. Or maybe after a Bible study, after a youth group meeting or something like this, someone's wrestling with an issue and you have the privilege of being able to walk them through a few things from the Bible. That's in season. How about out of season? That's when you're at work. That's when you're focused on doing something and now an opportunity presents itself. What are you going to do? In season and now, you're out of season. Can you share? Can you preach? Can you tell the word? And, and, and I'm just going to encourage you. What's going to give you even greater confidence is for you to spend time in the word. See, the more you can get comfortable with the word just by reading it and meditating on it. Don't just read it, but meditate. Think about it. Dwell upon it. God, what does this mean for my life? What are you saying to me today? How am I supposed to live this out? What does it mean? How do I live it? And the more we treat the word that way on a regular basis, you're going to be so comfortable with it. It's going to become your favorite book because it's the only book that has truly transformed you. All other books that have changed you They've only changed you because they were rooted somewhere in principles in that book, the Bible. Because that's truth, and only truth transforms, truly transforms for the better. Okay? And so, <coughs> excuse me. And so we do this in season, but we do it out of season. So many times I remember at the University of Delaware, I was just so exhausted being up super late. <coughs> and I had a practice that is a custom, if you will, in which I would go into the commuter's lounge and to eat lunch, and I would try and sit with someone to share the gospel with them. So many times I would just be so tired, I would just walk in there, and, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't look around. I would, if, if I did, I would say, okay, Lord, please, I'm, I'm not doing it today. Okay, I'm sorry, God. I'm just so tired. And I would go over, and I would sit down and across from somebody, and I would just start eating my lunch, and they would ask me a question. Oh, is that a Bible? Yeah, 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 it is. It is, yeah. So do you read your Bible? Question number two. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually like reading the Bible. Thinking to myself, I also like eating and just right now being alone, but you know what? You're sitting across from me, and so I'm like, I'm going to let you ask your questions, but I'm so tired, you know, and, and this is what I'm thinking. I'm not saying it, if you were wondering. I'm just thinking it. And they would just start asking more questions. And before I know it, God opens up this door, and it's like thunder and lightning. You can't miss it. And I say, I've got to tell them my testimony. I've got to share with them the gospel. I've got to do something here in season and out of season. When you feel like doing it and when you don't feel like doing it, God will give you the grace for those, op for those opportunities. Trust me, he will. <laughs> But you know what? The, the real question then becomes, are, are, we, are we looking for those opportunities? Are we praying for those opportunities? I'm going to tell you this, that you will find, you'll see those opportunities the more you pray about them. Your mind will be thinking about them and praying about them regularly, not once a month, but like every day or at least several times a week. God, give me opportunities, show me, 
praying for this person who doesn't know Jesus. And when an opportunity presents itself, it's like the Lord is knocking on the door. Hello. And he'll get your attention. Trust me, he will do that. But you see, what's really hard is when you're so preoccupied in life, you only occasionally think about sharing your faith or occasionally picking up the Bible or occasionally praying, thinking about God. It's going to be really hard for him to get your attention because you're just so focused on so much of what's out there in your life. Okay, That can happen. It can happen even to pastors. But the more we're in the Word, the more we're just spending time with him and praying for the lost, God's going to give those opportunities. Amen? <clears throat> he tells him that in using the Word, you can use it for three different things. Do you see that right there? Three different things. I want to make sure that I am not missing. So here we go. The first thing, in the NIV anyway, is correct, then rebuke and encourage. Just a moment on those real quickly. Correct is... <clears throat> basically means to convince with evidence. To convince with evidence. I had to walk someone through this word, actually, some time ago, maybe two years ago. <clears throat> and they just wanted to point the finger of sin out, but they did not give any examples or anything, and the, per the people were confused. Well, I, I don't understand. What do you mean? be specific and they refused to be specific and I had to bring this up to him and I said Matthew 18 if someone sins against you go to them and do this convince them with evidence so that you can win them that's the goal anyway to win them to be reconciled but if all you do is say this is what you did wrong and it's like I, what do you mean I gossiped I, I don't did what did you hear? I, I don't remember saying anything or pointing something else out. No evidence. There, there can be no reconciliation. What am I owning up to? I don't understand. Help me. So this is not necessarily confrontative because you're trying, in this case, in Matthew 18, you're trying to win someone. You're just simply trying to convince them with the evidence. Rebuke means sometimes to confront, but sometimes it just simply means to urge. Sometimes it, it means to urge in a way towards opposition. We, it's properly translated rebuke. Other times, the same word is used, and it's translated charge or urge, such as when Jesus charged or urged Jairus, his wife and daughter, who she, he had just raised from the dead, not to tell anybody. When Jesus charged his disciples, after he had asked them, who do men say that I am? Peter says, his great confession, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus charged them, using this word, charged them, urged them, don't tell anybody. In essence, it's not time right now for you to tell people who I am. In essence, I want them to see what I do, hear what I'm preaching, and let that convince them for right now. I want them to be confused. I want them to ask questions. I want them to hunger to know who I am. And so he tells them, don't, don't tell anybody. At least not right now. Don't tell anybody. He's urging them. He's not rebuking them. And so sometimes when we're using the word, the, the truth, 
We may have to be confrontational. Sometimes, though, we're just simply urging and trying to move them and encourage them. I did this with my kids a lot. When I would come along their side, I would try and encourage them and move them in a certain direction because I knew if they were going to continue to head down this direction, when you're a teenager, when you're an adult, you're not going to learn how to be faithful at work. You're not going to be able to learn how to love. You're not going to, whatever it is, I'm urging them and kind of pushing them in that direction. If, if you don't get it now, it's going to be really hard when you're older. Now, I'm thinking this. I'm not telling them this necessarily. And so I would urge them. Paul told the Thessalonians, we were like fathers to you, urging you. He was also like a mother, caring for them and loving them, but he was also like a father. And fathers urge and they plead. They don't use anger as a weapon. Unfortunately, many dads in our day do that. No. We use truth, not as a hammer, but as a way to encourage and stir something up in them encourage them and and ignite a flame in them to move in a proper direction and yes there are times in which we must be confrontational with the word i think this word rebuke many times comes across very confrontational and so when we read it like correcting and rebuking it seems harsh when in actuality it's not necessarily sometimes it does uh, when, I, when I'm training leaders, I tell them this. Be as gracious as you possibly can. When people in the church, for example, are caught in a sin, don't feel like you've got to come up and confront them and rebuke them and be harsh with them. Plead with them. Show them, encourage them. Do you realize that when you do this, how it hurts others, how it's hurt me even? And plead with them in this way. And if they dig their heels in the ground and they get oppositional, that's when you begin to be more forceful. But approach them gently. Paul, Paul here tells them when you're handling the word and when you're sharing it with others, do it with great patience and careful instruction. I don't want to leave encouragement out. Encouragement is, is a very common word in the New Testament. We've even talked about it before. Parakaleo means, kaleo means to call. Para means alongside. So call them alongside. And basically what you're doing is what my youth pastor did with me some time ago. And he said, Mike, come with me on a walk. And he and, he, he and, he and I walked together side by side. And he shared a truth with me that challenged me to the core and it changed my life. But he came alongside and he was a much older man than I am. Usually youth pastors are like young hip dudes and this guy was anything but. But he knew how to handle the word and he could really relate with teens. And right then and there, he related with me and he crawled into my boat and he shared a very deep truth with me that it laid me out. I began to realize, wow, because it, it challenged me. It called me out of a sin that I was caught in that I didn't even realize. And the root of it was pride. And God had to deal so deeply with that issue in my life. But I'm grateful for him. That he was willing to call me along his side and share with me. And it's not always to point something out. But it's many times to just build up. That's what the word does. 
God is a father to us. He is not just someone who, who comes home in the evening and says, okay, who do I need to set straight? Sometimes that's how we feel God, that's, sometimes we feel that's what God does in, you know, in our lives. Okay, I'm going to church. It's like my father just came home at night. And uh, when you listen to us, I guess I've got to just buckle up and listen to the word or I've got to, you know, and, and we're afraid of being convicted and that God is just going to be harsh with us. That is not his heart. I don't know what your dad was like. That's not the heart of the father. The heart of the father is to come alongside in the person of his spirit. That's why the spirit is called the paraclete. The one who's called along your side to help you and encourage you and motivate you. And this is what we do with the word. Patiently, gently instructing, helping. Okay? And so I, I think sometimes we just, we view scripture as something that just constantly wants to point something out to us that's wrong. And, and let me just say, sometimes, guys, there is something wrong. There is. And when we approach the word humbly, that's when we have, that's when we have um, obtained the right posture to be able to hear from God and really be changed. Change is always hard. It's always hard, and especially for me, because it, my personality likes to just dig the heels in when something wants to change. You moved the furniture today. How could you? What? Usually, though, it doesn't happen in my house because I'm helping moving the furniture, so we talk about it first. But that's when I start digging my heels in in that discussion. You want to move it all the way on the other side and move it? That rocks my world. And so, you know, my wife and I, whenever we just changed the, the house around, okay, in the, in the family room. And it looks better. It, I, I like it. And when my wife proposed it to me, Many times she just approaches me and says, okay, just don't say anything. I want to share an idea with you. Okay, that means I'm supposed to sit down. And I'm supposed to just relax. I'm not supposed to say anything and just let her talk for like five or ten minutes. And she's just going to share her idea and what her vision is and why she wants to do it and what the end goal is. And she, she knows me well enough. You know, Just don't say anything. Just listen to the whole thing. And then you can talk. So when she had shared it with me, I thought, you know, those are really good reasons. Yeah, we need to. And so we changed around. I'm, I'm just, I just don't like change. And many times we feel as if every time we come to the Word, it's just like God just needs to change me. And we, get, we dig our heels in the ground. Can I just, try, can you just trust that the heart of the Father is not for that? It is to change if you need to change. But He's so gracious. He's so loving. He's so gentle. You know, Karen shared uh, an amazing opportunity she had just this past Tuesday with someone in a crisis situation in their life came to her, apparently knowing that you're a Christian, and just thinking, maybe Karen has something. And she's beginning to share with Karen, and Karen just took the deposit of the word in her life and she has recently rededicated or dedicated her life to the Lord. And God just put her in a situation to share that good deposit with someone. And it saved this girl's life. It saved her life. Because she was just willing, you know what? 
I, I, can, I can tell them about the word. I can share a principle and especially how, you know, this situation related to her life and what, the, what God the Father has told her, taught her. She just shared that. She just shared it. And it changed this person's trajectory in life. Turned it around. Praise God, thank you for doing that. Paul then goes on and he, he, he lists four things. He says, you know, people are going to turn away from the truth. I get that. But don't you follow them. You know, they're, you're, you're going to want to handle them gently. You're going to have people and sheep that you're caring for. And you're going to be very concerned. So how then do you respond in those situations? He gives four things, four challenges, four imperatives. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but... He says right there in verse 5, he says, number one, keep your head in all situations. Number two, endure hardships. Number three, do the work of an evangelist. That is, evangelize. Tell people about Jesus. And number four, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And for us to kind of bring that down so that it's relatable for us and not just for me or someone else in the fivefold ministry, for all of us, Let's just get our, let's kind of wrap our mind around this for a moment. He's, first of all, he says, keep your head in all situations. Basically, what he is saying there literally is, in all things, be sober. Be sober. What, what, what do you mean, be sober? I, I don't get drunk. Well, obviously, he's using it figuratively, and what he's trying to convey to us is, don't become intoxicated by the desires of the world, or by your own emotions. Don't let them lead you astray. Rather, you learn to lead them. And, and especially in facing the persecutions, and, and even for us, as far as what the world is trying to do, and can I just say, I'm so glad that, uh, uh, wow, what is his name who just bought Twitter? Help me. Uh, Elon Musk. I'm so glad that he bought that and is trying to rectify just how far off base it has gotten and trying to shut people down so that if you don't adhere to the far liberal left, my goodness, what are you going to do? No, and he's opening it up and he's trying to make it more fair and I appreciate that. But the truth is there's, there's a lot in our culture that wants to force us and squeeze us into a mold. Timothy, don't do it. I know you don't like the persecution. I know you don't like it when people don't accept you. But you know what? You need to be okay with that. You need to not allow yourself to become intoxicated by, number one, people accepting you and liking you. Can I just ask you, if you were to just take a moment, put life on pause, and assess it, do you find yourself doing a lot of things in your life because of how people might view you? Do you even serve because people might like you more? People might accept you as a friend. Do you buy gifts for people so that they will like you? Do you serve, though, just because Christ is in you and wants to give? 
And if we're not careful, we find ourselves doing things in life so that people will like us. So that their opinions about me, Mike Curtis, is positive and good. And he says, you know what? Don't be led astray by that. So as you're just kind of right now thinking through some things and you're taking notes, don't be afraid. Maybe just jot down a few things. What do I do in my life? And I, the real reason why I'm doing it is because I'm trying to appease people and just make them happy. Making people happy so they like you should never be a motive for why we do what we do. Because if that's what's driving you, you have become intoxicated by popularity or people's opinions. We don't want to do that. You know, the bottom line is that there's only one opinion in this entire world that any of us should care about, and that is God's opinion. Amen? And so, let's be careful. We don't want to be led astray by desires. We don't want to be led astray by um, emotions. We don't want to be led astray by, you know, wanting to be popular. So many different things we could touch on there. But the truth is, we need to be sober in all things. We need to think straight. We need to get our heads screwed on straight, if you will. And we certainly don't want the world to shut us down or for us to be intimidated, which was Paul's concern for Timothy, that he would be intimidated by others, by the fear of persecution. We need to be free from that and what other people think so that we can truly do what God has called us to do. He says here to endure hardship. And he says that in view of the circumstances, what we've been going through, James, that it's easy for those circumstances to end up, and the pressure of those circumstances to end up dictating what we do. I'm not saying that we don't think about those. We're in a recession right now. Inflation is beginning to skyrocket. Of course, we have a lot of people saying, oh, it's not that bad, it's not that bad. And, and they would throw out these figures. And, and trust me, people, when you hear statistics, just always ask, well, where did you get that statistic? Because people pull statistics out of the hat. Old statistics. Statistics that are buried. Statistics that were thrown out because they weren't true. And they use them, and especially in politics, try and win votes, to try and get people to, hey, the president is doing a really good job. Inflation is only, it's under 6%. Well, just double that by two and you might be a little closer. But the truth is, how you count inflation can vary. And the bottom line is, the president is always, whoever's president is always going to choose the lower figure when it comes to inflation, okay? So I'm just, I'm just saying that in this time of, for many, a financial crisis, for many of you here in this room, it's been very hard, and business has been very hard. I do work for a dealership, and they have just been hit from a number of different angles, and it's impacted my business. And so I'm finding myself at the end of this month just saying, okay, God, you provide. You do this. You come through. And can I just tell you that he always has, always he is, the, the Bible says, I have never seen the righteous begging for bread in the streets. I've never seen it. 
Wow, what a testimony to the power and the providence of God that he can take care of every single one of you. And even those of you who have good paying jobs, I, I, I know what that's like. I've been there. But then there's that fear. What happens if I lose this job? What happens if the market spirals downward and it affects my business? What if, what if? And all of us, or let me word it this way, none of us are immune to the external pressures. Church, endure hardships. Learn how to daily rejoice and never allow those hardships to dictate the direction of our life. We may choose wisely to move in this direction, but after we have our heads screwed on straight and we're really pressing into God, He leads us. Not when we're frantic, not when we're filled with worry or fear. Endure hardships. Number three, do the work of evangelists. And I'm just going to simply say that all of us can evangelize. All of us can share our personal testimony. If you can speak in that same in that person's language, English, which is generally the case here, I think, you can share your testimony with them. It's not that hard. And I'm just going to encourage us. That's what we need to do. And it says, it concludes with this, discharge all the duties of your ministry. I want to just ask how we discharge our duties. That, that, that sounds a little bit too, well, um, like that, that's a career. Well, that, this is your ministry. This is your job. Like, what's my job? I'm, I'm just... I'm just working, you know, with the with the city and, and the, the waste department, or I'm just working here. I mean, my goodness, I'm a clerk in a store, and so, you know, my minute, my duties. Wow, he is simply saying all of you have a ministry. Every single one of you has a ministry, and he's simply saying, just fulfill it. Fulfill it. Do that work. And I'm just going to tell you, sometimes that work is hard, church. Sometimes that work, we just want to close our mouths. When the opportunity comes in, comes up, for us to be able to minister to people. And I'm just going to encourage you, the time is so short, and Paul realizes, you know, the older that you get, you tend to st stop looking so much to the future, and you start reminiscing about the past. You're not really afraid of the future anymore, but you're concerned about what, what has gone on in your life, and you want to turn to people and say, hey, don't do what I did in the past. I, you've got a future ahead of you. Follow, follow the right way. Don't do what I did here. And there's something inside of us that wants to encourage and challenge and help people, young people especially, to move in the right direction. How we do this, though, is so important. I'm just going to share four real, four real quick things, how we can do it or how we cannot do it. I want, you, I want to use an illustration. When I was a kid, there, were, there was a tree across the street from us, a little bit further up the road, a tree across from us, and there was a beehive in it. it. It was a hornet's nest, and it was this big. There were four ways. I didn't think of all four of these to begin with. I only thought of one. Four, there were really four ways to get rid of that hornet's nest. The only one that I could think of was this first one, throw a rock at it. If you throw a rock at it, and man, that hive is just going to burst and those bees are going to go everywhere. And well, if they go everywhere, then they're going to chase us. So when we throw that rock, we better hightail it as fast as we can. And that's what we did. And some of them chased us, but I, we managed to outrun them. We were so fortunate. So fortunate. You know, that's kind of like how some of us operate in the kingdom. We can sometimes be way too caustic. 
when we share the word. There's another way, though, we can chop down the tree. The tree on the side of the, the building here fell down. Now, nobody chopped it down, but it fell down because of the hurricane. There was a hornet's nest in it, and so we were instructed to stay away from it. But two weeks later, when we went to the tree to chop it all up, the hornet's nest was completely gone, completely gone. So we might think the best way to get rid of this hornet's nest is just to chop it down. And I'm just going to suggest, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, uh, you're biting off more than you can chew. Just be careful. Don't feel as if you've got to save the world. God is just calling you today. Can, can you share the gospel with one? Can you minister? Can you serve? Can you sacrifice? Can you be poured out like a drink offering for one today? Can you do that? Stop thinking about chopping the tree down. Don't, don't feel like every time you've got a witness, oh my goodness, what if I talk to an atheist? Do, you know, do, I, do I know how to talk to an atheist? Do I know how to talk to somebody from another religion? You know, if you don't feel comfortable with that, just say, you know what, hey, I, I, I'm just going to be praying for you. Because I, I love you, and I know Jesus loves you. And there, there's a truth out there I hope one day you're able to discover. And you can just leave it at that. Don't feel as if you've got to chop down the tree. Or you can be like Winnie the Pooh. You know what Winnie the Pooh did? He covered himself in mud, and he took a, a balloon, and he floated up. I don't know how a bear does this. Maybe it's because he was stuck. But anyway, he, he, he floats up there, and he was going to put... Now, he wasn't going to try and get rid of the hive. Do you remember what he was going to try and do? Yeah, he was going to try and eat the honey. But sometimes we try to masquerade things, and we try to be too nice, and nothing else. We're willing to share some love, but never tell them about Jesus. And then lastly, you know what? There's a, there's a really simple thing that you can do. and I, Well, maybe I shouldn't say simple, but you can smoke them out. Now, what smoking does is it basically, as I understand, it puts them to sleep. It hypnotizes them. And then in, in, in that state, you can get rid of the high. Now, I've never done this, but there is a way that you can share truth and see people's lives change. You can love them, you can gently instruct them, and you can just be that authentic Christian that they have been wanting. The world wants to see authentic Christianity. They hate, many of them, they hate Christianity, but they, they want that authenticness. There's something attractive about Jesus in laying his life down for other people that's attractive even to the world. And if you can embody that, if you can make that incarnate, so to speak, in people's lives and show them Jesus and allow that then to turn into an opportunity to tell them about Jesus, people's lives will be transformed. And I'm just going to conclude with this, church. We live in a time in which Jesus may be coming back very soon, in which we could be hitting super crisis mode, we could be coming to a time in which Jesus could just be coming back or anything could happen that your time may be done. Not to strike fear in anyone's heart, but the truth is we don't have tomorrow guaranteed. What are we going to do today? Paul says, you know what? I'm an old man. I'm, 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 the only thing I'm looking forward to in, is not in this life. It's in the next life. But I've got one more thing to tell you, Timothy. Man. Don't be ashamed of him. 
preach the word. This book, this truth will transform people's lives. Don't shrink back from it. Proclaim it. Share it. Urge people. Urge them gently, carefully, lovingly. Don't chop the tree down. Don't throw a rock at it. You get the point. I just want to leave this with you. Guys, our time is short. We have no idea how much time we have left. I want to just encourage you. Like Paul said here, hey, I finished the race. I ran it well. You know what? When I was at the top of the fourth inning, he's essence saying to Timothy, I didn't give up. I didn't give up on my team. Now, the difference here is that Paul was actually in the game, okay? And I wasn't. But I'm so glad those Phillies did not give up. And they fought and they fought and they fought till the very end. Went into extra innings before they won. Don't give up, church. God has so much in store for you. So many good things. 